Welcome to BitFaced. This is something I normally put at the end of the episode, but I feel like this week maybe it needs to go at the beginning. Mental health is something I've struggled with my entire life. And asking for help is something I always felt was beneath me or something that would make me feel weak or appear weak. And in a compromised mental state, the last thing you want to be perceived is weaker than you already are. I decided two years ago that if I didn't get help, I was just going to continue to get worse. And it was one of the hardest things I ever did, but I asked for help. And without open and honest conversations with my friends and certainly my professional therapist, I can tell you in the most specific terms that I wouldn't be recording this right now because I probably wouldn't be alive. As hard as it seems at the time, talk to someone, anyone, get help, get professional help. Trust me, you're worth it, even if you don't feel like it on most days. Nobody can do this alone, guys. We all had a rough year last year, and a lot of us retreated to media to make ourselves feel better. Talk to a lot of you about replaying your video games. Talk to a lot of you about digging in the back catalog of movies. But the show that really got me through the shit show that was 2020 was Ted Lasso. On paper, basically a rewritten version of Major League, but acted and written so brilliantly. It's rare that I watch a show multiple times unless I really like it. I've gone through Ted Lasso five times at this point. I figured we should do a bit faced in the spirit of mental health because it definitely helped improve my mental health. I've got two of the people here that help me on my journey every day. Co-host Doug Lund from my Tap In Geek Out podcast and also my good buddy Carl Lundin. Guys, what did you think about Ted Lasso? You know, Eric, the first thing I would say is uh, thank you for sharing that, for for that introduction. I, I think it's the perfect setup not only to give a status and commentary on on where we're at, but um, we're going to get into some fairly emotional discussion when dissecting Ted Lasso. So um, really happy to be here. I'm so psyched. I haven't been this excited to talk about a TV show in I can't even remember how long. So uh, yeah, really looking forward to this. I struggled initially with trying to figure out how to do this episode because we spend so much time on the lighter side of things. And and again, at first glance, you look at something like Ted Lasso and it's very easy to, you know, not only ask, how do we get that much content out of, out of a show like this? And also, how do you look at it through the lens of something serious, like, like the subject of mental health? And the longer I thought about it and the more I started to reflect on his individual relationships with the team members and really the exigence that drives the behavior of each of the individual characters, it became clear that like that's really the central focus of the show. All of these people needing to come to a place where they are mentally safe and comfortable and they don't win. They don't come together until you reach that point. And so in retrospect, I realized that like this is actually the perfect show to talk about as we look at this through the lens of, of mental health. So I'm super excited to be here, and I'm I'm glad we're doing this tonight, guys. So the show starts off as Major League. I hate to say it. The premise, a sports team given in a divorce to someone who hates the husband and hates the team, and their goal 
is to completely take the team down. Granted, Major League was a little bit different, but it's essentially the same premise. And I'm going to so, ask that we back up a few years here to talk okay. about the origin of this yeah. story. Because before okay, we, go we dive it into the deep stuff and the content, it's important to acknowledge a few things. One, Ted Lasso started as essentially a comedy bit, a promotional bit that NBC was doing for the Premier League. What was it like 2015, 2014? 2013 and 2014. Two five or so minute bits where we get introduced to this character who is a farcical kind of send up of a high school coach. But how do you get from what is essentially a commercial to a fully realized television show? And furthermore, how does Apple decide that that is going to be their pandemic content, for lack of a better term? How do they decide to use that as one of their flagship shows? I think it's a really good question, Doug. And I think that the answer to that is that the guy that was doing it is Jason Sudeikis and his resume includes Saturday Night Live. I mean, you think about it, right? Saturday Night Live has made a, what, almost 40-year run. Is it 40 years or 50 years? And six of them are pretty good. Almost 50 (laughs) years, right? They've, for over 50 years, done exactly that. They've allowed these people to play with characters tinker around with them, see if there's enough there to make something out of the character and then move it into a space like another television show or into film. And if you think about it, those bits that he did for Premier League, they're basically SNL content, right? And it just worked and they saw the potential for something there. So to your point, had that not been an SNL player that was involved in that, that may have died and you may have never, ever seen any more content from Ted Lasso. You make a good point because the jokes that landed in those bits are the best jokes of the first episode. They reused really good ones. But Eric started talking about this show not too long after it premiered. And uh, I checked out the trailer and immediately wrote it off based on what I saw there. I was a Sudeikis fan all the way back to his Saturday Night Live days. I liked the guy, and I've always kind of had this soft spot for the people that are from Kansas City that are on the show. Like, Heidi Gardner's on the show now, and I root for her, obviously, as well. So I just always kind of had a soft spot for Sudeikis. And to your point, I mean, we're in the middle of pandemics, right? We're just, like, looking for something to watch. And I thought, you know what? Let's give it a whirl. 30 minutes. Let's see if it's got the goods to go any more than that. I got done watching it and I went and talked to my partner, Heather, and I said, you have got to finish watching this show with me. It's so good. And everybody that I've pitched this show to, everybody have said, you've got to go back and watch this. That's where I always start. Like this show has no business being as good as it is because to Eric's point, it's basically it's major league, right? And when you tell somebody that they go, I, I'm not into, I'm not into that. And you're like, no, 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 no. The setup is major league, but the guts and the bones of this show is something that is like so emotionally resonating that it has no right to be as good as it is. Sudeikis is also what brought me to Lasso. In fact, it was a Friday night, just like tonight's going to be. I stumbled onto my couch six beers in and I saw his smiling face on the TV under the Apple ad. And I thought, sure, I like Sudeikis and everything he's done. I don't think there's anything he's done. I'm not a fan of. I think he's a great comedian. The fact that he's a Kansas City Chiefs fan only helps popped it on. And I was only two episodes into the season. So I watched this weekly, like I've gotten used to WandaVision and Winter Soldier now. And I miss that a little bit, guys, to have something like, oh, man, tonight when I get off work, I've got four shows to watch. And then I have to wait another week to watch them. And it makes me break it down better. But 
it drew me in from the very beginning because it was Major League. I know that might turn people off, but that turns me on. Major League, I think, is one of the best movies ever. Why not take that premise and do it with soccer? And right. of course, the soccer humor or the football humor probably plays better over here because, ah, stupid Americans. At least that's what I think when I'm watching it, because I don't know what half that shit means either. And I played for four years. Everyone should learn at least something today. And this is what I learned in researching this show. And I can't believe I've gone 45 years without looking this up before. But the team that Ted Lasso coaches is AFC Richmond. And what led me down that path was I'm like, well, what the fuck does AFC stand for? It's Association Football Club. The term soccer comes as a bastardization or an abbreviation of the SOC in association. It was a a sock team and then it became a soccer team because that's what the Brits do, right? They play around with language like that. But yeah, soccer is short for association. That is uh, very interesting, actually. So one thing I was thinking, uh, you know, before we really get into the nuts and bolts of this is that we probably ought to take a step back and talk a little bit about the basic premise of it so that they get a feel for where this thing goes. So the short version of this is we have this guy named Ted Lasso, who is a college football coach at the Division II level. He is currently, as the show starts, the head coach of the Wichita Shockers, which is a Division II football team that had just won the Division II National Championship in their first year with Ted as the coach. And in fact, the prior year had finished like dismally at the bottom of their conference. And so the idea was that this guy was just this super fantastic coach and nobody really understood why nobody really got his secret sauce. So he gets a bunch of hits in a YouTube video of him dancing in the locker room and he starts to rise as kind of a YouTube star as as a result of this. And he gets his phone call out of the blue from a football club in the UK and they want him as a head coach. And so at the beginning of the show, you have him and his trusty sidekick coach getting on a plane and heading over to the UK. So without ruining too much of where this story goes, because you learn this right away, The thing you have to know is that the ex-wife that owns this football team went through a really, really nasty divorce with the ex-husband. And one of the few things that she got in the divorce was this football club. And the only thing in the world that this guy loved was the football team. So her plan is to run this thing into the ground and destroy it to make the ex-husband miserable. And so the idea being getting Ted Lasso to come over and take over this team is to publicly humiliate her husband by having an American football coach running this team and destroy it in the process. So that's sort of your kickoff point for where Ted and his associate coach show up and start to make moves and start to make changes in the team. So for those of you that have no familiarity with the show, that gives you sort of the basic premise for whether or not it's something you're even interested in watching in the first place. What do you think? Did I miss anything? You guys can find the complete breakdown at carlscrappyrecaps.com. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you Henry David Thoreau. <laughs> uh, I'm going to demonstrate what I mean by I took way too many fucking notes on this show. Because like Eric, I'm like five viewings in at this point. And we'll eventually get around to the conversation about what is it that keeps bringing us back to this show. Because there's just something very real there. But. One of the great things about Apple TV content is that, you know, 
that all you have to do is fire up your Apple Music app and you've got the complete playlist of all of the music in this show. So it made it really easy doing the research on that part, right? Episode one opens with God Save the Queen. Talk about British iconic songs. That's a great place to start, particularly if you look at the lyrics and God Save the Queen. She ain't no human being. And there's no future in England's dreaming. And then we get Rebecca's face. That's a great way to use music to set up character from the beginning. It also, you get a good Oasis joke in reference to testicles. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't bring that up to tell a cheap dick joke. I brought that up because music is a very important thread throughout the whole series. And I almost think they cheated and designed the music for people our age. 35 to 45. A lot of it is very specific to the era that we grew up in, starting with the Sex Pistols, Doug. I mean, when Paige wanted to introduce us to punk music, what album did she give us? Never mind the bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols. And after you're done with that, listen to the Dead Milkman. It's an iconic album. So I think music is very important. Not only the music the show uses, but music is referenced multiple times and in multiple episodes. After we meet Rebecca, we cut back to the airplane or maybe Scott Van Pelt's in there somewhere. I thought it was weird that they used ESPN to set up the character since the origin was on the NBC Sports Network. Rebecca is the first character you see besides Ted dancing. And then you cut to the airplane. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Ted's coming out of the shitter. Did you notice the book that he picked up that he was reading on the flight? I didn't. It's the uh, Dharma Bums by Jack Kerouac. It was basically his semi-autobiography of his introduction to Zen Buddhism. Very brilliant setup right off the bat. There are two characters in fiction that I truly kind of look up to, not so much in an interpersonal way, but like in the cleverness with which they manage people, right? And those two characters are Red Reddington from The Blacklist and Ted Lasso. And oddly enough, it's in many respects for the same reason. On the blacklist, one of the things that uh, that Red was so good at is like he could find himself in these insane circumstances and could do this rabbit out of a hat trick where he could start telling a story that brings people out of the state that they're in and puts them in this state of like, what's going on? What is this guy talking about? And the idea of that is very interesting to me because it goes to this concept that my partner Heather introduced me to as a result of working with children in her profession. And it's this idea called conscious discipline. And what it has to do with is a method of seeing conflict, acknowledging like where you're at in your mental state, whether you're, you know, in in your aggressive reptile brain, whether or not you're operating your executive function level and acknowledging where you are and acknowledging where the other person is and trying to bring that person out of their reptile brain and back into their executive functions so that they can process and work with you and grow from the experience. Right. And lizard the wizard, baby. Yeah. Lizard to wizard. And so it's interesting as, as Doug and I were talking about this other night, Doug was like, yeah, I've done some executive training and I've heard a lot of these same concepts. So conscious discipline is just this application of this notion of like making people conscious of state and bringing them up and out of it. As again, I was mentioning the Red Reddington thing. He was genius at this because he would tell these non sequitur stories where all these people standing around with guns are like, 
why is this guy telling us about a bakery in Rome right now? But what was happening was those people were in their executive state then trying to understand what was going on. And so they'd been brought out of that aggressive state and he could talk to him and manage and manipulate the situation again. And in a lot of ways, what I noticed as I was watching Ted Lasso is that there were a lot of those same similar characteristics, right? Ted was a genius at never getting stuck in his lizard brain. Because you think about the whole arc of the show, what happens? Beat up, beat up, beat up. People take shots at him constantly. And you keep waiting for Ted to take the bait. You keep waiting for him to finally have enough and swing back. And he doesn't. Every single time that person takes a swing, Ted recognizes the state that that person's in and what they need, and that's how he responds. And when you really think about it, that's the arc of the whole season. Because as those people learn to trust him and they learn to move away from that state of fear and reaction and move to a state of like curiosity and happiness and excitement and believing in the possibility. That's when the team comes together. That's when Rebecca becomes a partner to Ted. That's when all the things start to click. And it all centers around the fact that basically Ted is like this conscious discipline genius. Like he, he is so good at staying out of his lizard brain in conflict that he is capable of helping everybody around him all the time. And the final thought I want to make on this is I said there are people that I look up to that are, that are fictional characters. And the reason is because as easy a, a concept as that sounds like, it is incredibly difficult to apply and practice on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you're good at that, if you're truly good at separating yourself from your ego and your lizard brain, it's amazing what you can accomplish. And this show to me is just a reflection of that. I could never put that in words like you did, Carl. But you completely explained, I think, why this was a positive show for my own mental health. I have a sign on my desk at work now that says, be curious, not judgmental. And that has carried me through since this show. And it has helped me make decisions in my personal life and in my work life that have all been very good decisions. And just taking a step back for a second. So, yes, Ted Lasso was a teacher to me. And. The beautiful thing about Ted Lasso is he's full of dad jokes and he kind of comes off as a rube. Well, until you get to episode eight and then you realize, oh, shit. You know, you see some of his things work like when he gives the team the books. And one of my favorite moments when Roy Kent's sitting in bed and you know, it's just what piss off Phoebe or whatever he says to her. <laughs> and we'll get into how much I love Roy Kent and how much my girlfriend thinks I am Roy Kent in a little bit. <laughs> but Ted is such a good influence. And I almost don't want a season two. Right. Don't fuck it up. I was going to point out when we got into the later episodes, I've come back to this show several times several runs through now and it's because if i had to sum it up in one word it's cathartic yeah watching this show provides an emotional release that i think everyone could benefit from right. but i don't watch episode 10 i don't watch the last one i know what happens there i get to nine i stop there now i cannot say enough good things about the emotional journey that the show takes you on because if you have any amount of self-awareness as you watch him handle these people and educate them every day in small ways by modeling this behavior and being willing 
in the early episodes and early in these relationships to take the beating. That's the thing that's so valuable. And that's what you realize. And in a lot of ways, I think it's why the other characters come to respect him in the later episodes is that once they see what he's doing is working in small incremental value, they can reflect back on the beating that this guy took in order to get all of them to a point where they could see that possibility. And what do you learn from fictional characters? I believe in the value of learning from fictional characters. Like what else are they there for? If not for us to learn from them. Right. And when you see somebody that is able to operate at that level, it makes you want to be better. Certainly did me. And also let's talk about Roy a little bit. That's the other character that really stuck with me. And the first time I watched the show, I related to Roy a lot, but then afterwards I talked to Carrie about the show and she's like, you know, that's you, right? She's like, you are the crusty go fuck yourself. I know how to do this. I'm better than you are, but you have a heart of gold. And I thought about that for a second. I was like, oh, it's just my girlfriend being nice. And I watched the show again. I was like, oh my God, man, I am Roy. And one of my favorite Roy moments is when he's walking out of the gym after confronting Jamie and the guy's like, oh, Roy, are you going to go to the club tonight? And Roy goes, oh, man, are you going to be there? And he's like, well, yeah. And then Roy goes, well, then fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's just I can totally relate to Roy's temper and the way that he reacts in a lot of situations. I mean, the first thing he says to Tad Lasso, he's like, great, I get to end my career being coached by Ronald fucking McDonald. I mean, <laughs> Roy doesn't give a shit. But Roy is the first one on the team, I think, that realizes that Ted knows what's going on. Right. But you think about this within the context of conscious discipline and the notion that, you know, operating from a state of fear or operating from a state of hope and curiosity. And he is one of the best examples of that. Right. Because his whole character, if you think about it from the early part of it, is predicated upon the idea that he is afraid that these people will see his weakness because of his age. And everything that he does, the attitude, all of it is nothing but him protecting himself and trying to stay tough on the surface so that these people don't know that he's afraid. And, you know, one of the great moments in it is uh, is when he's sitting with his niece and Juno Temple. I can't remember her character name at the moment. Keely. Keely. Keely says, what do you think of your Uncle Roy? And she starts listing off everything and she doesn't once mention that he plays soccer. And he realizes, like, there's life after this. There's, there, there is an identity for me after soccer. And everything about that character was driven by fear up until that moment when he realized there was life after this. It's a wonderful arc for him. I can definitely see a little Roy Kent in Eric. He really is the everyman in this show that we're supposed to relate to, right? We're supposed to right. follow him on that journey, which really isn't a long one. I think that's the narrative that I walked away with is that Roy was fairly self-aware. He was very willing, very quickly to subscribe and kind of buy in. And I like to think that that was one of the threads of optimism that they left in the show is that, hey, guys, most of us are almost there. All it takes is one or two steps forward, and then we're all living the dream. Conversely, like you look at Jamie and the relationship that you see in its fruition with the father, it's the exact opposite message, right? Which is you can come a long ways. And he did with Ted. He grew and he became a different person. But all that it took was his dad treating him that way one time. And he was that person again. It's that easy to break 
if you're not with the right people and you're not taking the right steps and not making the right choices. And it's one of the most heartbreaking parts of the whole thing is that you, you see the father and you go, Oh, this is how this bastard was made. And then, you know, to me, one of the, one of the most beautiful setups is when he gets the note then from Ted and he realizes Ted was never his enemy and that Ted was the one that was trying to help him. And so there's hope for Jamie in the end because you see that he gets the note and you realize maybe the note is the push back the other direction that he needs to go the right way. And so the show is just brimming with that. I love it. I thought the note was almost like an afterthought. And we're already jumping to the final episode here, right? But I guess we're way past spoiler alerts. Right. Uh, AFC Richmond loses, but Ted Lasso wins. And Ted Lasso wins when Jamie Tart makes the extra pass. Right. That's the culmination of, of the narrative. So the note was an acknowledgement of it, but really it was uh, Tart's like, I know what to do here. I know how to win. And it's by taking good advice. I thought it was one of the most powerful and important arcs in the whole story. I give the, the note a lot more weight than you obviously did, because I felt like it was him realizing that he really was on my side. He really did want me to succeed. And there are people that like me and want me to be who I am, but also want to see me succeed. And if I had more of those people around me, maybe my life would be better. Ted Lasso was a better father with that note than Jamie Tart's dad was his entire life is kind of what I interpreted there. I thought I was going to be a little ham-fisted by saying that out loud, but I felt the same thing, that he was the father figure that he really needed. No, that's exactly how I felt about it. And that's kind of one of the only threads left open for season two and season three. Right. decided to do two more seasons at least, so... That all happened, and then the awards started pouring in for the show. So I don't want them to stretch it out too long. Again, I stand by the fact that I don't necessarily want a season two. I think the story is told very well. I mean, so what happens in season two? Does Roy become a coach? Because Roy's done. You can tell when he hangs up his jersey at the end of episode 10, he's not playing football anymore. At least that's how I interpreted it. I think Roy's too proud to play for like a lower level team or play on like a celebrity team, or I don't know how I assume maybe Britain is as bad as we are with exploiting their athletes. But I felt like besides Jamie's thread, it was a complete story. I think you potentially could spread it beyond soccer or beyond just this one coaching relationship story and, and do something where, you know, Roy's figuring out what his next chapter is and, and that kind of thing. Does it have the singular line and the, and the and the poetry and the beauty of like the sports story anymore? Eh, maybe it doesn't, but maybe you expand the world of it a little bit and these characters have more life outside of the game that you can start telling stories around. Maybe we can get a Roy Kent, Trent Krim buddy comedy going. <laughs> <laughs> the other everyman in the show, right? Trent Krim is important to the narrative. He is a reporter for The Independent it's in episode three, which is called Trent Krim, the independent because Rebecca is still trying to sabotage Ted Lasso. She hires what she perceives to be like the most critical, hard hitting journalist to really expose Lasso for what he is. But Trent's aware enough to see that Lasso is genuine. And that's the point in the show that you got to get to as a new viewer. You have to make it through episode three, because by the end of that show, Trent Krim tells you you're either all in on Ted or you're out. 
Right. You also get one of my favorite lines in that episode from Roy. Trent, you're a colossal prick. You always have been. <laughs> you get a Daily Planet joke in there, too. My favorite quote from you that do. episode is Keeley's, you have no idea the power of rhyming in this goddamn country. Did <laughs> <laughs> she and say I, I'm cute as a button with rhymes to boot or something? I'm cute as a button and I can rhyme my ass off. It's no wonder they want to take me down. That's it. Good job, Doug. What I remember is in that episode, you realize that Ted being the way Ted is, is a conscious decision on Ted's part. And I think that's very important because when he takes Trent to the restaurant and he orders the obscenely hot food and works his way through all of it, and Trent looks at him and he goes, this is going to kill you. And he's like, I know, but it would be rude of me to not do this because these people, you know, and he, and he realizes, oh my God, this guy really is this guy. And it's not accidental Mr. Magoo buffoonery nice guy. It is a real conscious decision, which is not to say it's strategic. It's not to say it is manipulative. It is to say that he is choosing to live his life this way. And that's, to me, the turning point with Trent is he realizes, like, this guy really believes in living his life this way. And that changes it for the audience as well. Then, based off of Trent Krim's very public commentary... The other characters in the show kind of start to get on board as well. I think that's what we see leading into episode four, which is the one with the kids benefit, is that these relationships are, are starting to gel and starting to set. And we even start to see Jamie and Roy approaching something versus uh, camaraderie. And Ted yeah. really brings it back to, hey, Roy, what were you like when you were 23 and one of the best players in the league? Were you totally just a cool guy? And Roy's like, absolutely not. And you can feel that click. And I think that's Ted's gift is Ted can, like you said earlier, Carl, Ted can recognize things in people and bring out the best of them. And what better job to have than to be a coach? And this is really the secret sauce, right? To do so in a way that is not confrontational. It's not belittling. It's not designed to make someone feel less than. Because those are very, very common ways that bad coaches try to accomplish the exact same thing. And he doesn't have an ounce of that in his body. Coaches, parents, and teachers, I think they're the most powerful roles on the planet. Because the power that you have over someone's emotional state and the way they see themselves and your ability to guide them. And I don't mean this in the ridiculous, silly Pollyanna sense of the term. I mean, like a coach can make a kid hate a sport. I had several of those made me hate the sports that I was in. And I realized later in life, it was because they were really bad people. And the power of having a coach or a teacher that is like that, that can set aside their ego and can understand what that person needs and can give it to them without it being belittling or hurtful or confrontational is it's a one in a million power to be as good at it as this character is. So you're saying there's a lot of shitty teachers and coaches out there. A lot. And again, you know, on the subject, we've talked about the commitment in this episode to, to mental health. You don't know their story. You don't know why they are the way they are today and why they treated somebody that way. But it doesn't change the fact that you're in a role that is so important and so powerful as a leader. You've got to find a way through that. And this character is just such an amazing model for it. I was going to make a tan lines joke, but it's gone. Something about Carl's football coaches tan lines. 
Oh God, sounds like a good joke. Which is ironic. Come on, Doug, (laughs) give it to me. It's not actually ironic, right? But it's (laughs) ironic because apparently my uh, high school football coach was a nudist because he lived up the street from my grandma, and she could confirm that. So he had no tan lines. Exactly. Still the part of the segways. story I don't believe is that you found that out through your grandma. <laughs> Which grandmother was it? Carmen. Oh, I believe it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd have said Donna, I'd have been like, nah. Yeah, grandma Carmen was a sassy old broad. <laughs> Carl, you're very familiar with the Kansas City area. You live there. Yeah. How accurate is a lot of the clothing and hell, the football team? There's a decent number of Easter eggs that are built into this. And like I said, I mentioned earlier, I've always had a soft spot for the SNL folks that are from the Kansas City and Kansas City regional area. Like, for instance, with Sudeikis, there's this interesting little piece of trivia. Like, the first skit that he ever did on SNL was this bar scene skit, and he and he helped write it. And the bar that's in the scene is The Wheel, which is one of the college bars at KU over in Lawrence, Right. So he's big on baking these Easter eggs into these stories. With this series, they did some kind of funny things that were real and and some amalgamation. So yeah, there's a couple of neat references that are thrown in. So like number number one is of course the Wichita State's Shockers. So Wichita State is a, is an actual school. There is a, a university at in Wichita, Kansas, and they are called the Shockers. I highly recommend you look up the Shockers mascot because it is kind of horrifying, actually. But yeah, that's real. They did have a football team up till a couple of years ago, and that's where he supposedly was prior to to going to the UK. Um, You also have the T-shirt that the guy is wearing that says, uh, Joe Arthur gets stack. And what that is, is the four kind of royalty, if you will, barbecue places in Kansas City. It's uh, Oklahoma Joe's, Arthur Bryant's, Gates Barbecue, and Jack Stack. So they didn't, Uh, yeah, so they didn't know if they would be able to get copyright release from the different barbecue places in enough time to use it in the episodes. So they mushed it all together just so they could get their nod without potentially getting any trouble for copyright infringement. The other thing, of course, is the Casey Signs baseball cap. Sudeikis' best friend from Kansas City's last name is Signs. So there isn't actually a business called Casey Signs. He just threw that in as a nod to his buddy. I think that's all of them. I know there were a couple of other barbecue jokes along the way, but in terms of like like visual Easter eggs in the story, I think that those are kind of the big three that they managed to get away with. What barbecue sauce does he get delivered to him? Oh, that's a good question. I think um, it's Arthur Bryant. I think you're right. I think it was Arthur Bryant. So maybe they did end up getting the rights to one of the barbecue places, but I want to say the sauce was very specific when Lasso pulls it out of the box. He tastes them right there in Rebecca's office. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was Arthur Bryant. It's funny, though, you know, if you look at Kansas City Barbecue and those are the only four you know, then you're doing yourself a disservice by not going a little bit deeper into uh, what's available to you here. If somebody comes to Kansas City for the first time, they've never had barbecue KC style and you want to take them somewhere that's nice and, you know, giving them the premium experience, you're taking them to one of those four places. My personal preference is Jack Stack, but people go back and forth on this, mostly about what kind of barbecue sauce they prefer. Do either one of you guys know how accurate the soccer teams are? I'm pretty sure Richmond is not a real team because Sudeikis mentioned during the Golden Globes that they're still trying to make merchandise because they had no idea 
yeah. that people would want a Richmond soccer jersey. And as you guys know, I will definitely be ordering one. The rest of the teams they play, though, are those like Crystal Palace. Is that a real thing? Yes. Yeah, Crystal Palace is. is real. Everton, I recognize. Obviously, Manchester United is one of the most popular Premier League teams. So besides their team, the rest of the soccer teams are actual teams. I think so. We've talked about a lot of different aspects of the show. And one of the things that I thought would be kind of fun to do is some roundtable questions. I want to go to Eric first. What is your single favorite episode of the whole season one and why? Episode eight. It's not just my favorite episode of Ted Lasso. I might put it top 10 television episodes of all time. Start to finish. It's a great episode. It's the one that starts when they're coming back from beating their rival or the team they haven't beat in 60 years. But that's not the important part of the episode. There's a scene later on in the bar where at this point you're confident in Ted Lasso, but you don't know. You think that maybe he's still kind of a little bit of a rube at this point and gets challenged by Rebecca's former husband to a game of darts. And Ted starts playing and he's telling jokes about cookies and shit. And you're like, oh man, Ted, come on. This guy's about to mop the floor with you. And then Giles from Buffy pulls out professional darts and is like, oh, I forgot I had these with me. And then Ted goes without missing a beat. Oh, I forgot I'm left handed. And I stood up and fucking cheered. I was so elated. Oh, my God. Ted's about to just fucking roll this dude. He's about to completely hustle him. And he does. But he does it in not a white man can't jump hustle way. He does it with one of the most brilliant monologues I've ever heard on television that revolves around the note I have on my desk. Be curious, not judgmental. And you know what, Rupert? If you were curious, you would know that I played darts every Sunday in my dad's sports bar until the day he passed. And after he says that, it cuts to Rebecca's face. And it's one of the best bits of acting. The look on her face at that point, she realizes, oh, he's about to sink these last two shots effortlessly. Yeah. He doesn't even have to think about it. And Ted doesn't say this to berate Rupert. I think he says it to educate Rupert. Like, dude, you picked on the wrong motherfucker today. You think that I don't know what I'm doing because I don't know anything about soccer. And I'm over here and I'm a fish out of water. No clue. But if you were curious, <laughs> you would realize that I can beat you at darts every single day of the week. Ted doesn't even gloat. There's not one bit of gloating. He just says, good game, Rupert, and walks away. One of the, my favorite scenes in television history. I swear to God, guys, there's so much to be learned from it. I will put on just that scene yeah. just to pump me up. Yeah, so it's that's it's, that's it's fantastic. How about you, Doug? It's funny because a lot of the things that, that Eric mentioned, those were the exact notes that I had. Like there's several episodes in this show that are rated higher than that one. And I don't get it because this is hands down the best episode since I'm going to go the route of not duplicating effort here. If I had to pick one that was an episode eight, it's the episode immediately before that when they're in Liverpool taking on Everton, their rival that they haven't beat in 60 years. There's so much of that catharsis that I mentioned earlier in this episode. We see them finally ending a decades long losing streak we see all of these characters coming to the realization that they're ready to move on. Rebecca hooks up with the young waiter. 
Ted hooks up with Sassy. Keely and, and Roy almost hook up in this episode. This is the turning point where it's like, all right, we're ready to put the shit behind us and move forward with this newfound positivity. I see. It's interesting because I actually liked episode six the best. And it's because episode six is where all the poison finally gets out with the exception of her admitting to Ted what she did, right? You can't have episode seven without episode six other than just, you know, math, right? Because they have to go through what they go through in that episode where they have the curse and they all, they all have to do the, the cathartic dropping something valuable in the trash can. And that's the first time that Rebecca really has identity with the team as well. Right. And she sees yeah, herself start, in it. starts to get there. Right. Yeah. Starts to get there and realizes like there might actually be something special that's getting ready to happen with this team. Right. And that's, that's huge. And, 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 you know, Jamie realizes that Danny Roja might be as good as he is. And all of a sudden Jamie can no longer live in this, this delusion that he's eight feet tall and bulletproof because he's not. And there's a kid that might be just as good as he is. And he might be well on his way to being the next Roy Kent. And there's a moment of clarity for him. And you think about it, it's the first moment he really participates with the team as like a team building thing when he comes in and participates with the, with the trash can. And so you can't have the trip to Liverpool without that episode. And it was like, that for me was where you saw Rebecca starting to really regret the choice she made and realize that there might even be a way through this where we can win. So I love that one because I love the idea of the potential more than the execution itself. Let's go back to Doug's real quick, though. Yeah. Because that episode <laughs> has my second favorite scene. And Doug, if you want to talk about it, I'm sure we have the same scene in mind. Layering karaoke on top of a panic attack. That's not my favorite part of that episode. Oh, it's not. I love the idea that there's this moment of fun where you see the team cutting loose and being human with each other. We get to see coach beard singing lady Gaga. And then Hannah Waddingham gets up there and Holy shit. I had no idea who this actress was. I had no idea that I'd seen this actress before because Carl seen game of Thrones. I know you never made it that far in that show, but she showed up as a pretty, I guess, meme worthy role at one point in game of Thrones as the gigantic nun that was following Cersei Lannister down the street in King's Landing when, when she had to do the walk of shame and she's got the bell. Shame, shame. I didn't recognize her. Hannah Waddingham is gorgeous and her voice is even more beautiful. But you see her showcasing this talent. That's when Ted Lasso loses it. And his performance through that panic attack, it gave me anxiety because it was just, I guess, that relatable. Again, we're seeing that contrast there between this pain that they're having to let go, the different ways that it manifests. I think in a show like this, which is, it's not a drama. It really is a comedy. It, it's just, it's one of those rare examples that delivers so well on the feels, but showing a panic attack and then talking them through that and using that as part of the story, I thought was just really well done. Eric, what scene are you talking about? When Nate the Great reads his coaching tips to the team. Yeah, that's great. That whole part is good, but when Roy walks up to him and says, don't read it, 
And then he tells him straight to his face, like, Roy, you know, you're fucking slow, dude. I used to watch you play and it used to inspire me. You used to run at the field like you hated that fucking thing. And now you don't let any of that out anymore. And then Roy rocks over to the corner, rips the bench out of the wall, and the team goes out and wins the game. That's kind of like almost what episode 10 in a normal sports show would be. They put it right in the middle. They finally got the big win. They don't end with that, but you do get to see a victory. So that was my second favorite scene, hands down. And Nate's last comment, I'm terrified to see what it's going to do to you if you don't let that anger out. It all circles back to mental health. See, mental health was perfect for Ted Lasso, guys. Who did you feel outside of Ted Lasso was your favorite character? It's got to be Roy for me. Rebecca would be a close second. I think Rebecca has one of the best arcs on the show. I would agree with that. That's a hard villain to redeem, and I think they do it. Her apology comes across as as so genuine that you, I mean, it's all the characters. I think that's one of the things that this show does so well. Every single one of them is 100% authentic, genuine, believable, you know, whatever adjective you want to use. You never doubt it. There is no suspension of disbelief. I have to go with Keeley because I'd seen Juno Temple in a few things before. Nothing ever stood out or, or struck me as particularly special. She is phenomenal. And I will argue is the glue that holds this show together. I'll agree with that. I went back and forth on this. I couldn't decide if I was going to say Keely or Rebecca. I ultimately went with Rebecca for a couple of reasons. It was incredibly hard to play because when you think about the premise to this show, I have this asset that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars and I'm going to piss on it to make my ex-husband mad and miserable. The idea that someone would really do that and that, you know, there weren't financial advisors stepping in and, you know, board members and things, they sold it and you believed that she believed in this holy war enough that she was willing to burn this motherfucker to the ground. And I loved the fact that you didn't question that. The other thing about her that I thought they did really, really well, they teased her development in the sense that she would get a little better. She would get a little more open. She would she would change just a little bit. And then she gets punched in the fucking stomach by new Rebecca or whatever. There's like there's a litany of other little bits of story exigence along the way where she grows a touch and then gets punched in the stomach and you're like, God damn it. She was getting there. And then she's two steps backwards again. And I thought they did a really good job on the slow burn until she finally really came clean about the whole thing. And I I thought that was very well timed and treated very, very well from a writing perspective. I loved the payoff because you get her sitting down with Ted and she's ready to tell him. Then she backs out. She gets cold feet. Then Rupert comes in and gives her probably the biggest gut punch. I never wanted to have kids with you, but I'm going to have kids with my hot new Rebecca or young Rebecca, whatever. And you see the pain in her face. She tears up. And the way that they play that scene, it's like, well, she's not going to do it. She's going to back out. She's going to double down on hate. She's going to revert to fear. She immediately goes downstairs and tells Ted right after that. She gets it like there's only one thing to do there. And Carl used the term getting the poison out earlier. Like it's time to stop hurting. And that scene between Ted and her is beautifully acted because she 
admits to Ted exactly what's been happening, that she sent away Jamie Tart. She brought Trent Krem in. She did everything she could to make this team eat shit. And Ted stands up from his desk and just says, I forgive you. And there's and, so and, much to be learned from that. Oh, there's man. So much to be learned from that. that scene. The takeaway from that for me is if you in your lifetime ever have the opportunity and the grace to forgive someone that easily for something that horrible, take it. Because it will probably be one of the greatest feelings of your entire life to let someone off the hook, so to speak, in a manner as gracefully as he did. I hope to have an opportunity to forgive someone that gracefully at some point in my life. Kind of realize at that point that the show is really about how both of their divorces affected them differently. Sure. As we've talked about all this, we haven't really talked that much about those few moments where they humanize Ted. And you think about the necessity of that storyline where you see his life falling apart. And the most important part of that is Ted lives in this extraordinary way and this extraordinary optimism and this extraordinary positivity. And here's the thing. This doesn't mean it's all going to work out okay for Ted Lasso. It just means that despite it not always working out, he will still choose to live this way because there's more good from this than bad. And I thought that was so important to show that the system doesn't always work, except that it does. If whoever happens to be listening to this walks away with even one message or lesson, it is the power of choice. That is where bravery comes from, is choosing to do the difficult thing, choosing to have the difficult conversation, choosing to be honest about what's really going on inside your head, because it makes conversations with anyone else in your life so much easier. You always have that voice that says, there's a way out of this where I don't have to do the difficult thing. Ignoring that voice, acting differently, that's bravery. And it is life-changing to see what happens when you start acting with that agency and choosing to live, again, whatever word you want to use, from a place of hope, from a place of love, from a place of choice. It is why I love this show so much, because they took what is such a powerful message and they built it into what is a decent story and created something that is, it's damn near perfect. I'm so glad we chose to look at this through the lens of mental health, because as you guys both know, I started a new job back about four or five months ago and it was big and it was scary and it was intimidating and it was way above my pay grade. And it would have been very easy to approach this in a way that was protect yourself, do as little as possible to draw attention to yourself and stick to what you know. And it's funny because I think about this, like I watched that show in its entirety a second time right before I took that job. And, and I really did in some ways make that choice for myself with this job that like, I'm going to go to this, like hopeful, I'm going to go to this positive. I'm going to go to this with that kind of wide eyed curiosity and that intent to, it sounds silly, but uh, to live like Ted Lasso as much as I can. Can you do it every day? No, absolutely not. You cannot do it every day, but you can try. And that's really the lesson. I'm just shocked because like I said to you guys when we started this, I didn't know how this episode was going to turn out. And in a lot of ways, I, this is like one of the best conversations I've ever had with the two of you. So I'm so glad we did it. And I'm so glad we did it th in this particular way. And so I wanted to ask you guys one last question and then we can move on or we can wrap up here. What do you feel like 
was the most important thing that hits you in the feels. The one moment that you're like, man, that was the one, that was the most important thing I learned. It's the most important thing I saw. I gave you guys mine. It's the dart scene. I think that's where the whole message of the show gets distilled down into its essence. It's beautifully active. It's beautifully written. It's delivered flawlessly. And I can barely fucking think about it without crying, but I know I can't get through that scene without just bawling with it. It's not sadness. It's just, it's so moving. It's so cathartic. I literally feel better afterward because I feel like I've been emptied of my poison. Eric, you stand by that same scene? Hands down, same scene. I'll take my minute and a half here, though, to talk about how good some of the fucking jokes are. Two I'll mention, when Coach Beard said, uh, Ronald Reagan, the actor, I lost my shit. I was laughing so hard. I know it's a Back to the Future reference, and of course that's going to make it better for me, but I just I thought it was really well done. And then there's a part where one of the players asks him, I heard in your country that, you know, dogs get killed because there's so many of them not taken care of. And he says, you know, that is true. But that's something that our female singer songwriters are really working to, to fix. It's just Sudeikis knows how to deliver a fucking joke. I didn't know he was such a good dramatic actor before this, but his joke delivery, even on jokes you would consider to be, quote unquote, I hate the term dad jokes. They're so good. They're so spot on. So Definitely watch the dart scene, but pay attention to the little bits of humor and the little asides. Like when he says to Keely, she says, well, I don't know what to think when a grown man beatboxes. And he says, well, I hope you don't run into Biz Marquee. It's so well done, the delivery. And then at the end of the episode, what do you get? Biz Marquee over the credits. Back to the music I talked about earlier. Guys, we could go on another hour about this. But Carl, tell me, yeah, what's yours? I have to go to Jamie's dad yelling at him. That's my favorite scene because if the message of the show is sympathy and empathy, that scene is his forgiveness arc, if you will, that you realize this is a villain that was made. This is not a villain that was born. Talking about this in the context of mental health, the role that trauma plays in the people that we become is so profoundly understated and you see glimpses of it in well-done drama or well-done comedy in this particular case an audience learning empathy by seeing how the villain is made and seeing that that is why they are and and, and in fact if they're really good understanding that the villain was probably made by another villain and that villain was probably made by a villain before them and so you can easily look at his father, for instance, and say, so see, Jamie's dad was the villain. You know, no, somebody did that to him, too. And that the best you can do is learn to break that cycle. You can learn to get away from that trauma and get better. That, to me, again, is the hopeful arc for Jamie is that he finds a way to get better and to get away from that. That's why I love the scene with the notes so much. There's hope for you. You did the right thing. The guy that didn't want you to do that is the reason you are this way, but you took the right step forward. It's so important because if you want to really understand why empathy is hard, you have to see that scene. One last general thing I'd like to mention in the middle of this entire conversation, the one thing that's been dramatically underserved is we have spent so little time talking about Coach Baird. 
<laughs> or Higgins. He hasn't come up at all. Higgins was amazing. You needed Higgins as your foil. I'm glad Higgins was there. But you cannot do fast, flat comedy without a straight man in the joke. And Baird is the straight man that makes every one of Lasso's jokes work. Because if he's not there to either give you the nod or to add a little something to do to the joke, then you're right. Lasso is just some asshole telling bad dad jokes. He is the wind beneath Lasso's wings for making those jokes work. When he does act out, it's some of the best moments in the show as well. Two that come to mind. Number one, of course, in the bar, when he actually oh, yeah. makes Lasso change his tune, it's because Beard says, fuck you. This is about winning, dude. And I want to win. And everyone else wants to win. You're the only one that doesn't give a shit about this. That scene. But then the beginning of the divorce episode <laughs> where Ted comes in and is all frazzled. And uh, Nate's like, is he OK? And Beard's reaction of just, no, no. <laughs> it's so <laughs> It's very well acted. I haven't seen a lot of these actors in other things, and I really want to kind of seek them out because I imagine they can't just be good in this. Brendan Hunt is not in a lot of other things that you will see him in. He does a lot of voice work, but does not show up on the screen a lot. He's in cameos in the original bits, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. They brought back Coach Beard from those bits, but I've not seen him on the screen in anything else since then. His role is so understated but absolutely necessary because he's kind of the Nick Offerman of the show. Oh yeah. He's perfect at like everything. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, if you found out that Ron Swanson had another younger brother, it would be him. Right. And we never learn his first name. He's just coach beard. Yep. There you go. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me to talk about this. This episode was not only very important to me, because of what we went over in the beginning, but because of mental health in general. If you guys haven't seen Ted Lasso, I hope you just didn't sit through all that bullshit. But definitely give me your thoughts on BitFace. I'm really curious to see what you guys thought. From the virtual BitCave, my good buddies Carl Lundeen and Doug Lund. I am Eric G. Hollis, and football is life. <laughs> Thank you.